Welcome to McClatchy's Beyond the Bubble podcast for a special Friday the 13th edition. Please forgive us for missing you yesterday. We had to wait for some deep cleaning around the D.C. office after a potential, and I repeat potential, exposure to the coronavirus. But we're back, and I'm back too. Hello again to all of our smart listeners. I'm Kristen Roberts, the head of news for McClatchy, and I'm coming to you live from Miami. And today I'm joined by Alex Rorty, political correspondent for me and the D.C. Bureau. And he is probably on his 50th cup of coffee. Almost. Almost. You know, I'm drinking caffeinated coffee these days. Oh, I heard that. I switched. I think Adam told me that. It's a big change. It's a big. (laughs) Libby doesn't think it's going to hold out, but I I, I think it might be here to stay. We're also happy to have back on the show David Cadenese, a national political correspondent on our team. Hey, Dave. It is great to be out of quarantine. Just happy for that. <laughs> but aren't you guys going right back into quarantine after we re- after we record this? Literally, literally we're just going to pack up and leave uh, after this. No, actually. I don't think so. I can't do no, it. No, you're going to stay. You're going to stay. All right, guys. Today we're going to discuss the two big topics in American politics. Number one, did Joe Biden just win the Democratic nomination? And number two. Spoiler alert, because he did just win the Democratic nomination, we're also going to talk about something truly relevant to November, and that's how this pandemic might reshape our politics. So, you two ready? Absolutely. Ready to go. All right, let's do this. Here is what everybody listening already knows. Bernie Sanders himself knows he's done. And so, Alex, I'm going to throw to you first. Talk to us about how Biden did this and did this so darn quickly. Well, look, I, I don't I don't mean to be like overly obvious about this, but if you want to like the big picture, why did Biden suddenly win this nomination? Look, he started winning black voters with an overwhelming majority. And in fact, he started winning white voters with an overwhelming majority. And and truth be told, if you win white and black voters in the Democratic primary, you're going to do pretty well. So that is the 30,000 foot view of why Biden's doing well. The question is, you know, look, we kind of long expected as we discussed and talked about this primary that Biden was going to do well with the African-American community. There were moments of doubt for sure, but he always pulled best with those voters. He had the strongest connection there. It's why someone like Jim Clyburn endorsed him in South Carolina. So it, it's not a big shock that when push came to shove and the absence of any other Democratic candidate really making a, a big play for those voters, particularly after the candidacies of Kamala Harris and Cory Booker flopped, and Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar weren't able to make any inroads at the last minute in their own campaigns, that was always going to be a natural destination for a lot of African-American voters, particularly middle-aged and older African-American voters. The question is what happened with white voters. And that, I think, is the part that we're all still trying to catch up with as political journalists, because there was almost no indication that this was going to happen through the first three contests in this race, whether it was Iowa or New Hampshire, Nevada. The reason Joe Biden did so poorly in overwhelmingly white states like Iowa and New Hampshire he did really poorly with white voters. You know, those are almost the only kind of voter that exists in Iowa and New Hampshire, even in the Democratic primary. So the, the best theory I think that we have at this point, I'll say it's twofold. One, Dave likes to make a dating analogy. They were dating Pete Buttigieg. They were dating Amy Klobuchar. Maybe they were dating Elizabeth Warren at one point. But again, when push came to shove, after none of those candidates really broke out in a major way, they decided that they were going to go to the default option in this race. And the default option was the former vice president of Barack Obama, the statesmanlike candidate with the experience who you know, a lot of voters see as the most electable candidate against Donald Trump. And I, and I think it's fair to say that that was really the motivation here, the 
prime motivation was, you know, maybe if someone's not going to inspire us in this race or if no one's really going to break out, let's make sure that we settle on someone who we think can beat Trump and that Biden really, for a lot of conventional reasons, fit fit that mold. So, uh, you know, yeah. I, I think that's why, you know, at the at the end here, everyone shifted to him. And look, it's just it's it's still hard as I say here, you know, as I talk here to you guys to, to comprehend how fast this happened, because it, it just seemed like to come out of, out of the blue, even a few days before South Carolina, we thought Joe Biden was going to win. We didn't think he was going to come close to nearly 50 percent of the vote. And it was just the one last part of this that has really come clear in South Carolina and then in Super Tuesday and then what happened on, on Tuesday in places like Michigan. You know, these older suburban voters, maybe a lot of whom were voting for Mitt Romney in 2012 or John McCain in 2008, they really came out not just in, in strong support of Biden, but that's where you see the turnout surge. And if you take a step back and look at where the turnout is up in this Democratic primary, and it's up lately over 2016, it's in a lot of suburban, once Republican areas. And that makes sense that a lot of those voters would go to the more moderate candidate in Joe Biden that they would turn out for him. But you know what else makes sense? And I'll tell you, this is a this is a perspective that I have because I was sitting most of the time in Florida or in other states while those early states were voting. As Bernie Sanders started to pick up momentum, you could see people beginning to tense up about it. And suddenly electability became a major issue. And for any uh, you know, any Democrats who might be more to the center than where the activists are right now, it became the regular topic of conversation. If Bernie Sanders is our nominee, what are we going to do about that? Right. And can he really win? And you saw it in editorial board uh, endorsements throughout every state that had more center left voters in the Democratic Party than maybe the cities would, right? I mean, Dave, what are you hearing about? Or what did you hear about the electability question as Bernie's momentum seemed to be picking up? Yeah, I would just say that I think Biden was everyone's safe space. And I love the quote from Emmanuel Cleaver. I think it was in Brian Lowry's story, our colleague, Kansas City Congressman said, you know, we had all these race cars, but voters ended up just going with the trusty old Chevy. I, I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, for a year in talking to Bernie Sanders camp and his and his adversaries camp, Bernie Sanders was always like, we want a big field. We want everybody in. We want 20. We love that there's 25 opponents. Why? Because that was the only way Bernie could win. Bernie could win with 25 percent of the vote, 30 percent of the vote. That's why he won those early states. If you go back, he got 26 percent in Iowa, New Hampshire. That was enough to win with a field of, of, you know, five to eight competitors that were drawing some percentage of that vote. And you talk to the adversaries, you know, whether it be the Biden camp or the Kamala Harris camp, and they were all like, look, we got to get this down to a one-on-one. I mean, they were saying this back in the summer. You know, if we can get get down to a one-on-one race with Bernie, he can't win. And that ended up being proven out, right? I mean, once Biden got into those binary battles into Super Tuesday, he just cleaned Bernie's clock everywhere. And I think, you know, we're always looking for lessons, right? Like 2016, lessons about covering Hillary and Trump. And now it's like, Kristen, to your point, I mean, the activist base 
gets a lot of media attention, you know, gets a lot of retweets on Twitter. We call them as reporters maybe a little too often. They fill our stories. They fill the stories of the major publications. But they're not representative of the Democratic Party at large, which, which, you know, are regular people who go about their lives, who don't obsess over every every little, you know, advancement and development in Washington. And that's another new lesson. You know, they're very good at putting out press releases and pushing narratives. But man, I think with Bernie and also Elizabeth Warren, they were not great at netting votes. And I think that's a repertorial lesson that we have to take. I would just uh, and, and add one part. I mean, we talk about, Kristen, you mentioned the panic that voters felt when it really started to dawn on some of them that Bernie could be the nominee. And I think the important thing here was apparently some of the candidates shared that panic because to Dave's point about getting this to a binary race, I mean, the fact that Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropped out between South Carolina and Super right. Tuesday was was so important. Within and a day of each other. With, with, within a day of each other. And and it's not something that we we always see in, in races, in fact. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, after even after Nevada, we were still talking about Bernie as potentially a considerable front runner in this race is none of us expected that to happen. I mean, right. we didn't think that Buttigieg and Klobuchar were going to all of a sudden get out after South Carolina, that they had. The falling, yes. The falling of those dominoes came so quickly, and it was really counter to what we might have seen in other cycles, right? I mean, certainly we had more candidates than in other cycles, but Alex, you and I have joked about this in the past. Like, once somebody gets a whiff of the Oval Office, they cannot stop imagining themselves (laughs) in the damn Oval Office, right? But the fact that over the course of a couple days, every obstacle to Biden clinching this thing stepped away and then stepped right to his side and said, I'm with this guy. I mean, people just won Iowa. He won Iowa. Right. He, he very well could have won New Hampshire. And then a couple of weeks later, he, he kind of smacks his hands and say, well, I guess I'm done with this race. Again, he, he bested Elizabeth Warren in South Carolina and she wasn't getting out of the race, but he decided to do it. And it felt like, I mean, look, the party took this collective action to to stop Bernie Sanders. And I know that, you know, there has been some back and forth about whether or not that was the establishment steering these candidates. I, I don't even know what that means. Is that supposed to be like no. Democratic? He was protecting his future. Right. If he was 68, I don't know. Maybe he stays in. But Buttigieg is 38 and wants a future and saw he wasn't going to win African-American voters, saw he wasn't winning Hispanic voters, saw no path and was like, you know, why fight this out? Why bruise myself? I, I could be chief of staff. I could be a secretary of something in a Democratic administration. I'll be good soldier. And da- what David's describing is a rational decision right. that Pete Buttigieg made. And the thing is, Kristen, right. candidates often don't make rational decisions <laughs> that way. And that's, I think, why we're all surprised about this. And, and it was just to, to Joe Biden's incredible benefit to the degree that, I mean, like, as you open the show, I mean, this race is over, you know, and Bernie yeah. Sanders as much seemed to acknowledge that at his press conference yeah. this week. Well, let's talk about Bernie, though, because this was not a total fail. He's not going to be the nominee. He's not going to be the president of the United States. Probably never will. Right. But he's done an amazing job of pushing this party to the left. And Alex, you've been writing about this for more than a year. So let's talk about that. Sure. And you know what else I want to talk about? I want to talk about the group of voters who he has activated. And and my question for you guys really is, is Joe Biden even going to try to get them? Does he need to get them? Can he get them? And I'm talking about not just young people, but importantly, Latinos. Right. Right. Well, which part of that do you want me to, to, to start with? That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a lot to take on there. So that right now. 
That's it. Sure. Well, look, I mean, if, if the question is very simply, is Joe Biden going to try? I think the answer is he has to. Right. I mean, you're talking about Bernie Sanders is winning the 35 to 40 percent of the, the party. You don't win a general election without winning a huge share of those voters. In fact, if he doesn't win a huge share of those voters, he's very likely getting blown out against against Donald Trump. So, that yes, he is absolutely going to try. The question is whether or not he's going to be successful and how successful he's going to be. And I will say, I think the Biden campaign probably realizes that they do have a lot of work to do. And I think more than the Biden campaign, I think the broader Democratic Party realizes the work that they have to do trying to energize a lot of these voters. The good news for Democrats is they have a ton of money. And groups like, say, Priorities USA, or I think a group we're going to be talking about an awful lot between now and November, Mike Bloomberg's operation, mm. they have the resources and, and I think the wherewithal, or at least the, the, the comprehension that this is a problem. And they're going to try to solve it as much as possible. I would just say that Biden, you know, conceptually, Biden's biggest problem, what is his message, right? It is that we want to return to normal. If I could boil it down to one thing, it would be returning to normal. The problem is, and the entire impetus of Bernie Sanders' campaign, in fact, is that normal wasn't good enough. In fact, normal was ruining the American dream. And normal is what gave rise to Donald Trump in the first place. And I think the dilemma that Biden faces is that that message of returning to normalcy is very appealing for the suburban voters that we talked about that are turning out for him in big numbers and will be incredibly important in the general election. But it's just not a message that reaches a lot of, as you say, the Latino community or a lot of younger progressive voters. And how he does that, how he's able to adjust his message to try to reach out to them. I mean, I think that is one of the fundamental challenges for the Biden campaign. Dave, jump in here. How else will Bernie leave his mark? Look, I think Biden will eventually get most of Bernie's folks, but is there's always going to be some holdouts. There's going to be the hardcores that I mean they're very vocal, but we're, we're talking about numbers here, and I think you know that's going to be the next most interesting part of this campaign. It's not going to be who's winning these primaries, as you said at the top. This thing is over. It's going to be how does Biden go about approaching Bernie and how does Bernie respond? Now, I watched that press conference the other day with Bernie and I thought that was a reassuring presser that he gave. He did not look like he was going to burn the house down. He looked like he wanted something on issues and he wanted to sit down with Biden. I think that's why he wants this debate on Sunday with Biden. I think he wants to push him on health care. He wants, he wants to push him on student loans. He wants to talk about those issues that really attract young people. Now, Biden's not going to wholeheartedly embrace the Sanders agenda. We know that. They're different ideological polls. But I think there will be some room for Biden to give. This is what Biden's good at. Biden was a senator. He knows how to go into a room and talk. He got hit in the primary for being able to go talk to Republicans, right? He should be able to talk to Bernie Sanders and craft some type of overlap on policy where he can bring his folks along. But to the broader question, and I know we've talked about this a little bit just in the newsroom, the better play for Biden is to convert disgruntled, moderate Republicans, right? Young people are, a, I mean, we, we talk about them all the time. They're less likely to vote than people that are 45 and older and are, the, are that key swing group that went for Trump, maybe gave him a chance and are now looking at a pandemic and are going, whoa, 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 we need a steady hand. This is not going to fly. Yeah, and looking at a 20% drop in their darn 401k and thinking Absolutely. about the fact that they're now they've got to work 10 years longer than they anticipated. And I would just point one data point I noticed this morning. There's a new po general election poll out of Arizona, 11 electoral votes. Biden is up over Trump. 
six points. They have Bernie down seven points to Trump. This is a Republican-leaning pollster. Democrats don't even like this poll. But they have Biden up six points in Arizona. And the key line was that Hispanic voters in Arizona are considerably less supportive of Bernie. They are wary of socialism. I I actually was texting with a, a Hispanic member of Congress about this. And I'm like, what? What is the difference between Nevada, where Bernie cleaned up with Hispanics, and Arizona, where they're not for him? And he thinks it's a lot about union organizing and a sort of a democratic machinery and the culinary union and how that brings people into the fold, less so in Arizona, where they're not as tied to unions, therefore not as entrenched in the Democratic Party, are more swing voters and are older voters that aren't in the same industries as those in Nevada. <coughs> To me, if I'm Joe Biden, I am planning a ton of resources. And all those groups that Alex mentioned, tons of resources in Arizona. Because if you flip Arizona, you don't even need Wisconsin. You just need right. Pennsylvania and Michigan. You don't need Wisconsin or Florida or North Carolina. So Arizona, I think, is going to be a huge play for Biden and the Hispanic vote. That's a fascinating theory, the union theory, about why yeah, the different levels a, of Lat- right. you know, Latino support. Right. I mean, that's that's a, that's a fascinating. And, yeah, Arizona is the way out of Wisconsin, which if you look yep. at some of the polling there, is, is not all that bright for Democrats, right. or at it's least closer. it hasn't been in until now. Kristen, I want to pick up real quick the, the question you asked at the top. Where does the sort of lasting legacy of the, the Sanders campaign? You're absolutely right. Like the party has moved to the left and, and you've seen that in, in the wake of 2016. You saw that. And I think you saw it another couple of notches. This race, I asked myself this question in, in 20, 30 years. Who are Democratic candidates at that time going to name check as their inspiration? Is it going to be Hillary Clinton? Is it going to be Barack Obama? Is it going to be Bernie Sanders? And I, part of me thinks that Bernie Sanders, really, of, of all of them, might get as many shout outs as someone like Barack Obama as the inspiration. I mean, that, that's the, the kind of legacy I think that he is going to oh have. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. 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 <laughs> you really disagree with that. I mean, just every once in a while you say something that is so crazy. <laughs> no, no, I know. I love it. Um, uh. Have you seen... The way he's performed among younger Democratic voters, if this primary were capped at age 45, if you were over 45, you weren't allowed to vote, <laughs> Bernie would win this thing. Yeah, Bernie, yeah. Bernie would have been the nominee after Iowa. You know, <laughs> this this race would have been over. And those are the voters who in 20 or 30 years are going right, to be there. Right, because 2% of the electorate would have turned out. Well, sure, sure. But look, at I'm, I'm, I'm projecting forward here, 20, 20 or 30 years. But Okay, so you're imagining... Towns and cities around America being named Bernie Sanders High School, right? Or like intersections, Bernie Sanders Boulevard, all over America. Well, like California and Vermont, probably, but probably not outside of those places. I, I'm just saying it's like when the presidential <laughs> candidates of like 2040, you know, they sit down for an interview and they say, well, who inspired you when you were young? And I just think a lot of them are going to say, you know, I, I just I loved Bernie Sanders. Well, I agree with you on that. AOC. Yes. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who I would argue is one of the most compelling politicians of either side of the aisle, give her her mistakes. She's young, but she is a compelling politician. And I think she is sort of the byproduct of the Bernie Sanders revolution. She is going to pick up the torch. Absolutely. And uh, I don't know if she runs for president next time. I don't even know if she's eligible next time because she's not 35. But by 2028, she's going to be in the mix She's going to be a national figure. And, you know, I think that's going to be part of Bernie's. I mean, there's going to be another Bernie candidate, right, in the next cycle. To me, almost the question is, at what point do we get to a place in the Democratic primary where they're all Bernie candidates? I I think. And I don't think that's next cycle, but 
I mean, look, again, if you look at the numbers with young people, I mean, this is where the Democratic Party is heading. I don't, I don't But he was a... never able to get over 35 percent. So I think people are going to look at that and go, uh, we can't be full Democratic True. socialist because that didn't work twice. True. So we got to figure out. I mean, and this is what, what Kamala Harris struggled with. Cory Booker struggled with. They were trying to straddle that line. Am I an establishment centrist, moderate, or am I, you know, the liberal for Medicare for all? Uh, I got tongue-tied. I don't, I don't really know. Right. But the next wave of politicians have got to figure that out right. much more clearly. Right, because Biden actually didn't have to, because Alex right. was exactly right, that the play Biden made was, I, I don't need to say this to you guys, because I'm just the normal one. Right. Here, right? And, and, right. and what America needs more than anything right now is to be friggin' normal again. Yes. And that was his entire play. And actually, the question about like, who's the next candidate in the next cycle depends completely on how Biden and Trump go after each other and who emerges the victor on that. Let's do the switch that Dave was getting ready to do here. And let's talk about how the environment we're in right in the second, which is a level of uncertainty in American society that we have not seen in any of our lifetimes, right? I mean, this is a pandemic of unbelievable proportions, right? And at least that's the way it feels, and that's the way America is acting, now that every single sports team is sitting at home in self-quarantine waiting for this to end. Like, How does this moment in March of 2020 affect November of 2020. Well, I mean, I'll say that as a political reporter and a political junkie, I am less concerned next week about who is going to win the Florida primary than I am about how many coronavirus tests are going to be available and how many new cases there are going to be. I am consumed by this stuff. I couldn't agree more with that. America is. I think this campaign is frozen for a while. And I think if anybody tries to politicize it, they're going to be penalized. I think People want answers. This is when the government is most important. People do not want to hear partisan, politically driven attacks. So I think, at least for the short term, this thing is is pretty frozen. I think the, the question is, and we raised this in our story that went up last night, is like, we don't know how long this lasts, right? And how can you campaign? How can you reach voters? How can you... You know, just sort of the normal day-to-day functions of politics are are sort of on pause. And I think that affects every level. All these politicians, door knockers, all the way down to the grassroots, all the way up to the candidates themselves. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day, like, Biden is going to have a town hall. I think he's having a town hall in Illinois today, but it's virtual. It's all online. So, like, that interaction that he had where the protesters came up and started screaming at him in Michigan about guns cannot happen. I mean, you have total control. You can, like, cut the cord, right? It's a totally different campaign if this goes on for months and months. I would say, though, you know, just looking at the general election, I mean, reviews on that Trump statement the other night were not pretty. And I think Biden got the upper hand on that. Going back to Kristen's point, it's sort of just a steady hand on the wheel. And I think that helps Biden in the short term, although, you know, it is only March. We got a, it seems like we got a long way to go with this coronavirus. And that's sort of the question mark that is really hard to see. I guess I see two big areas of, of fallout as, as we move forward. And to Dave's point, I mean, we, we don't know how long this will last. We obviously don't know the scope of, of how much it's going to affect, although it appears to be touching every part of American life at the moment. 
But it feels like the, the two lines of inquiry, one is going to be on the federal government's response, including the, the Centers for Disease Control and their preparedness for this, their response to it, the executive branch's role in that, whether or not they were able to respond. And, and you certainly saw that. No, make no mistake about it. Joe Biden made a very blunt, direct criticism of that this week and what felt like a preview of what we're going to see probably in, until November. Obviously, the other big impact of this is the economic impact. And, and right. you know, we're at a point where I think J.P. Morgan yesterday basically said that we're going to be in a recession. Look, I mean, and, and it is a nightmare scenario for an incumbent president, just in normal times. Um, that was the one thing Trump could hold on to. It was the a one. roaring economy. It was the one, the one thing that was keeping him up. And in fact, if you looked at some of the polls, might have actually really been pushing him up over the last few months right. to a, a, a zone where it really wasn't clear that Democrats were going to be able to beat him in November. I mean, that was the way things were starting to look or at least starting to, to feel. And now, obviously, we're, we're thrown into all this uncertainty. I would just say in the, in the sort of the big picture, the, the, the holy grail for Democrats campaigning against Trump, which is obviously – Obviously, didn't go well for them in 2016, and he has been something of a political paradox from the beginning. But the holy grail has always been people don't like his conduct in office. They don't like his tweets. They don't like the things he says. He, they don't like the general sense of chaos. However, because of the good economy, they don't connect that with the effect on their average lives. It is something that is annoying, but it is not essential. It doesn't put them in danger. It doesn't put their job in danger. And in fact, Trump could argue the opposite. In fact, his campaign was starting to that maybe he's a jerk, but he gets the job done. What this does, the argument that this opens up for Democrats potentially is that Trump's behavior, the chaos coming from the White House, put you and your loved ones at risk and it wrecked the economy. If that is an argument that, you know, a majority of Americans start to believe, a majority of Americans in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, then Trump is finished. Then this this race is over. We are a long way there. But that that's the big connection that Democrats have sought to make. And I think we're going to start to see them make that in much more earnestly in the coming months. And you know what? I think that both of you are saying something really important here. And it's that no, Americans don't want to see their politicians out there right now beating each other up over one team's reaction, one team's response, because at the core, right, politics is actually about sentiment. And just for Democrats, just the current state of affairs is doing everything it needs to in there that will ultimately affect their relative success in November. You don't need to do anything right, right now. To throw punches. I was actually struck. I mean, I knew Biden, when he made a speech about coronavirus, he had to take a swipe at Trump. But I was curious to see how far he went. He definitely did it, said the administration is not, you know, can't be trusted on this. But it'll be interesting to see how far he goes in the weeks to come, right? If this thing gets worse, does he focus hitting on Trump or does he offer a real plan on, hey, this is what it would look like under my administration and try to keep it more about him and his policies? Because I do think there is a risk. Remember, the activists love it. They love, you know, somebody dunking on Trump. But regular people, if they're just watching this, they want to see who can administer the government, who can get, you know, ventilators to sick people, who can make sure there's enough hospital beds for people over 60, 65 who are going to need them, and who is sober-minded about this, who is competent. 
I think that is going to be a really important test for Biden, for Sanders if he's still in the race, obviously for the incumbent president. I, I would just say, I mean, the, the wisdom of this aside, I don't think that has not been the approach from Democrats as far as laying off Trump or, or maybe trying to model the behavior that they think is responsible or how the president should act. Then they are not going to lay off Trump. I mean, I think that this is already a full-blown political battle now, it does appear on Capitol Hill. I mean, things could change by the time you, the listener, listen to this, that they have been able to come to some kind of bipartisan agreement. And, and thank God as an American for, for that, to try to, to, to help the economy at the moment and respond to this crisis. But uh, the politics is like the cat is out of the bag. So to speak. Yeah, like, the politics of this is so gross, but you're absolutely it right. Has, it has already, like, there is, there's no hesitation. And, and there is a part of me that thinks 10 years ago, I really would have been surprised by that. And I think there would have been a, a larger chorus of, of voices saying that we shouldn't do this, that people should lay off. The truth is, I just think Trump has rewritten the rule book, in part because he is going to attack his opponents and, in fact, has gone back and forth with Joe Biden about this all, already. You know, I, I think there was a lot of wisdom in what you guys are saying. I just don't think that that is that's going to be how it plays out. Well, nobody listens to us anyway. <laughs> you, the what? listener, does. Thank you. The listener, yeah, does. the <laughs> listeners. You guys listen. Thank you. All right, we're going to go to my favorite part of the show. I want you guys to tell our listeners and tell me something that we don't already know. And Dave, you get to go first. So I was looking at just the overall primary vote. We're twenty-five contests in. As of today, and there's only one state where Bernie Sanders was able to get a majority of the vote. There's only one primary state that was Vermont, his home state. Now, in the caucuses, he got 53% of the vote in North Dakota. That was a caucus. It was 15,000 votes. But only one state of all 25 contests, he was able to get a majority of the vote, whereas Biden got the majority of the vote, obviously meaning 50% or more, in a total of five states. That would be Missouri. Virginia, Alabama, Mississippi, and the most important, Michigan. It just shows you how different a two-person race is versus a multi-candidate race where Bernie was cleaning up in the beginning. But if you look overall, only got to 51% in one primary. There's no really greater evidence how this race has changed and how Joe Biden has just taken a commanding lead that we really didn't talk about Michigan at all on this podcast. And he annihilated Bernie Sanders there, a place where Bernie won in 16 and it was a huge victory, symbolic victory for him, Hillary Clinton. It just doesn't even matter um, at this point. Uh, Mine is just on, on the sort of practical political impact of the coronavirus. You know, for a lot of campaigns, particularly someone like Bernie Sanders or a lot of even House and Senate campaigns, the field operation, the ground game is the lifeblood of of that campaign. Just something to think about is a sort of practical operational effect on campaigns moving forward because this virus. I spoke with a labor official yesterday. Labor always loves the ground game, always loves going out, knocking on doors, spreading the message of of their group and, and their policies. And the labor official just said bluntly, I don't think a field operation happens again this year. That it is, a, you know, just from a pure health hazard standpoint, that it's not smart, that that is a potential way to, to spread the disease. And, and look, wow. frankly, that voters don't want random people coming to their door, shaking their hand, talking to them in close proximity. They're just not going to want it. They're not going to be receptive. You're going to end up doing more harm to your cause than, than good. And, and it just is, you know, it's just a, a, a little glimpse at just how radically campaign operations might have to change. I should say that not everyone agrees with that as far as a field operation, but it is not exactly a wild opinion out there in the political profession right now. All right. Alex, before we sign off, tell our listeners who you are following right now as the race starts to shift. Who are the Biden reporters they should be following? 
Kristen, you will recognize this name, I think. Uh, one Biden reporter for the New York Times holds a special place in both our hearts. Uh, Katie Glick, who the longtime listeners of the show will remember as a frequent guest host on here, our old colleague. Uh, she has been covering Biden for the, the Times, doing an excellent job. One story, and you know, I think I flagged it on one of our recent episodes, um, that would get a lot more attention now. She wrote about how Joe Biden was apparently making up a story, just making it up about getting arrested and trying to see Nelson Mandela in the 80s. That turned out to be false. Just one of the many great stories that she has written about the Biden campaign. And you should definitely check her out on Twitter at at Katie, K-A-T-I-E underscore Glick, G-L-U-E-C-K. Yes. Katie Glick. I miss Katie every single day. David, who should we be following? Uh, I'm going to shout out a young, intrepid <coughs> CBS News inter- uh, in I should say embed, not intern, who I see on the trail. He's a go-getter. He's covering Biden. He's got every video clip of anything that Biden says. His name is Bo Erickson from CBS. The kid's just everywhere, uh, hungry, and his Twitter handle is Bo Knows News. Um, so... <laughs> Bo Jackson it's shout clever. Out for, it's yeah. clever, right? Bo knows news, and <laughs> l- literally, he's everywhere Biden is. So, if you want the latest on the Biden beat, that's who I'm checking when I wake up in the morning. Bo knows news. Bo Erickson of CBS. Awesome. I'm going with Anna Tinsley in Texas. She's at the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and the way I'm thinking about this is that I, I want to watch how Biden is going to affect states that were already going from red to at least. I think it's going to be tremendously interesting to watch states like Texas. And Anna Tinsley is in a position to tell that story best. And she's very simply at Anna Tinsley. So I hope everybody will follow her. So listen, guys, thank you to Jeremy Sheeler, our producer. And thanks to our executive producer, Davin Coburn. Thank you to Alex. And thank you to David. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever app you use. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or a review. And in the meantime, don't let anyone breathe on you. (laughs) Social distancing, people. No hugs. (laughs) No hugs. No hugs from strangers on the street. (laughs) Talk to you next week.